Why'd they move that? Yes. Well, it, it gets... Oh, you don't want this here, Daryl? It's okay. I just have my books there. I need to get my um, music stand. How's everybody doing? Let's go and get started. We have a smaller crew tonight. I think maybe I overwhelmed people last week or um, there was um, some confusion about the holiday and I don't take holidays, so here we are. And half of you guys are retired, you don't take holidays. So um, um, let's pray. Father, thank you for tonight, Lord. And we, um, we do wanna thank you for this holiday and for our country great place that we get to live, Lord, and the gift you've given us to live here, so thank you for that. Um, but also guide us tonight, Lord, as we talk about um, the manuscripts of the Bible that we call the Word of God. So just teach us and give us good questions to ask and, and, and um, great dialogue, Father. So thank you for this privilege. In Christ's name, we thank you. Amen. So I got the notes late today. So I'm talking to people who, if anyone's watching online or watching it later, I got the notes late today to the people who put them online, so I hope you have access to them. It was, um, I goofed off all day and didn't get them done in time. So, so I want to remind you of where we are. So we've talked about the fact that, that God has revealed himself. That's the water coming into the funnel. We believe that when God speaks, it is, it is fully reliable, without air, infallible, all those words. And that God inspired both the authors and the original documents that were written down to where whatever he said was, was put into words for us in that same infallible, inspired way. Then we looked at the fact that there's 66 books belong in those originals. We call the canon, 39 Old Testament. How many New Testament? 27, 27 very good. Um, then, then we started looking at the fact that we don't have those originals. They are all gone, whether they were destroyed, worn out, whatever it is, lost. But we have is copies, and endless amounts of copies. Well, that's not true. That's just an overstatement. But New Testament alone, we have 5,800 copies. The Old Testament, nowhere near that. And we talked about that last week or the week before, last week. So today I want to continue in the New Testament. But I want to start with everyone open up their Bibles, if they could. To Romans 5, 1. Romans 5, 1. And I got to change this. This is a manuscript from, um, I'm trying to remember if this is Sinaiticus or Vaticanus. I think it's Vaticanus. Vaticanus is a manuscript that is in the Vatican. That's why they call it that. It's fourth century. It is... It is, a it is not a scroll, it's a codex that contains the entire New Testament and much of the Old Testament LXX. I mean, it's one of those big, massive coffee table things, you know. Um, and so I want you to read to me, somebody, Romans 5.1. Anybody that has a translation, tell us what translation it is and then read it to us. Out loud, really loud, I'll repeat it. NASB. NASB. That is the inspired word of God. Read it, Kathy. Okay. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, having been justified, we have peace with God. 
Does anyone have a footnote on that that suggests a different translation? What is yours? And, and tell me your first name. Annika. That's right, Annika. Last time you had a mask and I didn't. So, so what, is it, what does yours say? Okay, so what Kathy Redwood says, we have peace with God. What Annika says, having been justified by faith, let us have peace with God. What's the difference? Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God? Or having been justified by faith, let us have peace with God? What's the difference? Okay, so the participation, meaning the second one, let us, is telling us to go do something. To go get this peace. Say again? It, it sounds like a, a, a position we're in. We have something. We possess it. The other one says we need to get it. We've been justified. One translation says you have peace now. One translation says you've been justified. Now go, go get your peace. Go find the peace with God. Very different. So as you look on the screen there, can you guys all see this? You see the circled letter. The Greek word is echomen. All right, um, And most likely, this manuscript was made in the 4th century in a scriptorium. So a scriptorium would operate this way. I would be the lead of the scriptorium, the main, the, main, the main scribe. I would have the manuscript here. You guys would have parchment in front of you. So, so instead of me copying it, I will read it to you. And as I read it to you, then you copy it down. So this is called capitalism once again. <laughs> Since these are being sold, we're going from one manuscript to what do we have in here? 15 people, you know, to 15 manuscripts at one time. But you see, you see the, the, um, what looks like a W up here? You see that? Then above it is a little tiny O. This is the Greek letter. The W looking letter is called an omega. The little O is called an omicron. And this, this is the grammar behind it, so I'll just say this. It doesn't mean anything to you. At least you, you know there's, there's reason for the translation. The omega says, let us have peace with God. It's known as a hortatory subjunctive. It's commanding us. The, the commander, Paul, is including himself in the command. Let us go get peace with God. The omicron above it is the indicative. It's stating the fact. We have peace with God. Here's the, here's the thing. A lot of manuscript variants are these two letters. Because when they're spoken out loud, the pronunciation of omega and omicron, o and a, got confused easily. So ekomen and ekamen, depending on how the guy said it, he should have said ekamen, and they heard ekomen and wrote it down. Do you follow me? So this is one way manuscript variants happen, is through scriptoriums, and it's spoken but what you hear may not be what I said. So here's what happens. Then later, after you write, you did your manuscript, then I or another scribe would go over your manuscript and I would correct it. So, so you see the O above it is the corrector. So you see right there, can you see the, the little thing right there, that B2, B is the name of that manuscript and the two means the second hand. So, so the, there's a second hand after the person wrote it, went in there and put that in. 
And, and so that, that's how these textual critics say, look at these things, which one is right? So, so from your perspective, what is Paul saying? Having been justified by God, we have peace with God? Or having been justified by God, let us go get peace? Okay, so, so are you saying that because that's what you've been reading your whole life as a Christian? Because no translation says, let us have peace. None. Even though the manuscript evidence is pretty good. The manuscript evidence as far as ancient manuscripts and all that is pretty good. But none of them choose that. All the translations choose the indicative. We have peace with God. So what is the difference in your daily life? If we say, no, 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 the original reading should be having been justified by God. Let us have peace with God. What does that change about how you live your life? It suggests you don't have it yet. So what do you got to do? You got to find it. So, so overall, our translator said, no, no, that, that's missing Paul's entire point of, of Romans. So, so I, I bring this one up because it's probably one of the most meaningful textual variants that might change some theology. Today we're gonna to talk about the amount of textual variance we have and the process that scholars go through to choose which one. And, and once again, you guys, the, our numbers are dwindling because I, I, I fear, I'm fearful that I'm, I'm giving too much information, which my wife says is a problem I have. Um, next week, we're gonna lighten up a bit on that. So if you're overwhelmed next week, you'll be underwhelmed. Um, Yes, sir. Okay, three-day weekend. Yes. Um, yeah. Yes. You know, what's funny is I don't even um, I don't even think about holidays. You know, first of all, we've been in an all-church meeting on Valentine's Day. That was really stupid of four men to do that. And then we did it on a three-day weekend. Oh, is it really? Snowing, you guys. Was it snowing when you came up? Oh, yeah. Okay. So, so I, I agree. The holiday messed us up. But anyways, here's what I'm going to do. In your notes, I want to step back. We didn't do something last week I need to do to move forward. And that is the idea in your notes. Um, oh, I didn't put page numbers on these. Darn it. I've been taking a larger document that I, in my Bible college um, notes and breaking them into weekly notes and putting the page numbers on, but I forgot to do that this week, and cutting them down. So nonetheless, that first page, under D, it says geographical text families. So I want to put a map up here and show you something. Can you all see that map okay? It's a map of the Mediterranean world. And unlike today, where, where information travels quickly, today, your generation knows information traveling instantly. I mean, absolutely instantly. It's unbelievable. When I was your age, it didn't happen that way. Um, so it's rapidly changed. But even when I was your age, it was easy to get information across the world in a matter of days. So, so, but in the ancient times, not so. In the ancient times, if I, would descend, if I lived in Alexandria, Egypt, down here at the bottom, and I was sending a letter to Rome, it would take months potentially for a boat, and it can only go in the summertime, couldn't go in the winter, because the, the seas were too rough. So communication took forever, or if they walked, it would take longer. 
And there were roads, the Romans had good roads. So as manuscripts are being copied, and they're being copied ferociously, because people believe this is the word of God. As they're being copied, you have different geographical areas where certain variants are appearing. So all the manuscripts copied down in Alexandria would be different than the ones copied in Greece, different than the ones copied in Rome. And, and when you're doing textual criticism, you want to find manuscripts where the variants are in two or three of the different geographical areas. Because if there's, a, if there's an error or a variant in one geographical area, the presumption needs to be, hmm, probably scribes made an error down there, and it wasn't passed on to the other geographical areas. Do you follow me? So I just want to explain that to you in your notes. I'm not going to read it all to you. If you see at the bottom right, again, where Alexandria is, if you guys know your geography, Alexandria is the bottom right of the Mediterranean Sea. And so Alexandria is the oldest manuscripts. That's where our papyrus comes from. And why does it come from there? Do you remember why papyrus comes from Egypt? Because it's dry, so it didn't, it didn't, it didn't um, deteriorate and, and dissolve in the, in the wet ground. And it comes more from upper Egypt, southern Egypt, that was flooded by the Nile, and so the manuscripts didn't last. I think you mean northern Correct. So if I screwed up, upper Egypt is southern Egypt. Yeah, it's higher elevation. Correct. It's probably, it's, yes, you're right, it is. This, is. this is a map I have in a Bible program that gives me the biblical world. And um, the biblical world didn't go down there. So, <laughs> um, so the Alexandrian is the oldest manuscripts, the papyrus, and many of the unseals we talked about. Let's back up. Remember what a papyrus, the papyri are? What are they made of? Boy, that was obvious. Papyrus. Then the unseals were what? What does unseal mean? Say again? No, no, the unseals, okay, the unseals were made on parchment, which is animal skins, but the word unseal means capital letters. So that the unseals were parchment with capital letters, and then the minuscules were also parchment with lowercase letters, and then the lectionaries, what are lectionaries? Correct, they were, they were the Bible of services. In other words, they didn't necessarily have a, in their service a Bible from Genesis Revelation, but they would have a calendar readings. So they'd read an Old Testament, a law, a prophets, a gospel, an, an epistle, and have readings every Sunday to where they read the whole Bible every year in church. So those are different kinds of, of, of witnesses to the New Testament in Greek. The papyri and the unseals are primarily found in Egypt. Now go to the next page in your notes. The Byzantine family. Byzantine is the area where you see where Greece is up there. You'll see in your notes here, under Byzantine, you guys with me? The Byzantine text is represented by the vast majority of Greek manuscripts, mostly the minuscules, and most of the later church fathers. This text is largely preserved in the area of the old Byzantine Empire, which is now Turkey, Bulgaria, Greece, Albania, and the former Yugoslavia. Its readings are described as smooth and unobjectionable, and difficult readings appear to have been alleviated. We'll talk more about that later. But so, the over, of the 5,800 manuscript, well over 4,000 come from there. So, a huge majority of them come from that area. And they are the ones that span the longest period of time of copying, from about the 9th century through the 16th century. 
right? The last one, oops, I skipped one, I'm sorry. I skipped the previous page, the Western. The Western text would be over there by Rome in Western Europe. So this is the three areas where you have large population bases that are copying manuscripts. You have the Western text, you have the Byzantine text, and the Alexandrian text. And they have different variants. And it's important to know when, when scholars are, are um, comparing manuscripts. So let me show you another chart, if I could, real quick. And, and then we have to move on. We'll use this as a background. Can you guys see that okay? It was in your notes last week. This is an old chart. It's, it's probably 25 years old. So I put updated numbers over there um, as about six, seven years ago. Because now there's well over 5,800, and that over there shows you there's 5,700. But this shows you the different type of manuscripts, whether papyri, unseal, minuscule, or lectionaries, and how many there were when this chart was made back in probably the 70s, maybe 80s, probably 70s. How many were per century? It's, it's especially the early ones where it says one papyrus from the second century. Now we have probably nine or ten because they've been finding them. But you'll notice there, the minuscules and the lectionaries, these two bottom ones, are the most. And they all come from the Byzantine area. So why do you suppose the Byzantine, geographical area of Byzantine, we call Greece and eastern, southeastern um, Europe, why do you suppose that has the most manuscripts? Pardon me? Had the most Christians. That's, that's a good partial answer. I want you to think about the other geographical areas. Notice up there where it has the papyri and the unseals. They take you from the 2nd to the ninth or 10th century. Go ahead. Well, they were all made the same stuff, except for the papyrus. The other ones are made from the same things. Now, clearly, the weather would certainly change how long they last. So, so that's, a, that's a good thought. What happened with the persecution? Well, certainly persecution um, eradicated manuscripts, absolutely. What is that, second century? Third? Um, there's a simpler reason, simpler reason. All these things are true. What happened... What happened, let me go back to the map. What happened in the seventh century to North Africa and Palestine? Who took it over? The Muslims took it over. Christians are greatly reduced. So you're gonna have a lot less manuscripts being made. What language do they speak in Rome all through the Middle Ages? Latin, not Greek. So the Greek was spoken there for the first five, six hundred years. Latin was always the official language, but Greek was spoken there. But once you hit, you know, the, the, the late, um, the late, what's called the late early ages, so about five, six hundred, and then later, Greek is not spoken very much, and Latin is the primary language. That's why we have 10,000 Latin manuscripts, because they're all made in the Western Europe. But the Byzantine Empire still speaks Greek today. So it was their Bible they were making copies of. 
The reason there's so many is because that's the Bible, the language they spoke, and the Bible they used in their weekly life in their church. So naturally, the majority of Greek manuscripts are going to come from the area that continued to speak the Greek language. Does that make sense? So this will all come to be more important as we talk about the English translations, which were almost, early translations were almost entirely based upon the Byzantine manuscripts and had no influence. So the King James and all its predecessors had, had almost no influence from Western or Alexandrian text. Where your Bibles today, the reason your Bibles today are different than the King James is because of the Alexandrian and Western influence. Manuscripts were discovered and it changed the choices they made about how they translate things. And we'll look at some of the big ones today. So, any questions on these geographical areas and the number of manuscripts? Good to have you, Thomas. None? Okay, in your notes. What is actually page two, but I don't have page numbers. In the middle of the page says F, the number of variants in the manuscripts. I um, have learned a lot from a man named Dan Wallace. He's a professor at Dallas Seminary, and he's a, he's a world-renowned textual critic. And so a lot of what I'm taking for you in this section comes from his writings. I've given you an article online in one of the books that, um, that he um, it, it has a chapter in that I get this information from. So, we've already established there's 5,800 Greek manuscripts, right? Some are fragments, some are whole books, some are whole sections like Gospels or Paul, and some are entire New Testaments. But 5,800 total. We've established that no two of these manuscripts are identical. Right? They all have variants. Anything hand-copied of that size is going to have different differences. So the question becomes, of these nearly 6,000 manuscripts, how many variants are there in those 6,000 manuscripts? If you haven't looked in your notes already, take a guess, somebody, as everyone looks at their notes now. A lot. That's a safe answer, Josie. Well, we don't really know. We can't know for certain. Because no one has sat down and looked at every single manuscript, almost 6,000 manuscripts, and counted them. I mean, that's, you know, who wants to dedicate their life to that? But they presume this. 200 to 400,000 variants in those 5,800 manuscripts. That's a lot. 200 to 400,000 different variants. By variant, what do we mean by variant? A variant is ekomen, ekomen. We have peace, let us have peace. Okay, it's a word, it's, a, it's a, usually a letter change. That, that's to simplify it. It's a change in the text where one manuscript has different wording than another manuscript. 200 to 400,000 possible variants. So right away, does that kind of make you feel... A bit, um, when I first heard that, I, I go, whoa, can we really trust this thing? And, and, and I, ho I, hope, I hope that sense comes upon you. Remember our, char our flow chart, our flow chart we've taken from 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. 
where Paul says to Timothy, the Bible you have in your hand, the Bible you were raised on as a child has led you to salvation. And all scriptures is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for correction, or excuse me, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. So you, Timothy, the man of God, may be equipped for every good deed. Paul is telling Timothy the Bible in his hand is inspired. We've, we've taken it and re- reduced it to the original manuscripts only, but I say the ones in your hand are inspired, even though there's issues with it. It's still the Word of God. But 200 to 400,000 variants seems like a big issue. Well, let's, let's dive into that. So notice there on the top of the next page, I say reality check. There are over 140,000 words in the Greek New Testament. Now this, someone could do here in the room. I don't know why you'd want to, but you could sit down and you could start in Matthew 1.1 and go to Revelation 21 and count every word. And you'd have over 140,000 words. So of 140,000 words, now you have almost 6,000 copies of that. Now all of a sudden, 200,000 doesn't sound so ominous. And let me keep going. The majority of those, the top of the page, on the third page, I'm going to read that paragraph to you. Reality check. There are over 140,000 words in the Greek New Testament. So with over 5,800 manuscripts, 200 to 400,000 variants can be better understood within this context. Next, you need to understand that only 1% of these variants are meaningful and viable. We'll talk about what that means. The overwhelming majority of them are grammatical. I get an example. Word order changes and spelling variations. Do you guys know that spelling was not standardized in any language until about 150 years ago? Do you know when spelling was standardized in English? Does anybody have a guess when spelling was standardized in English? And you know what I mean by standardized? Where we have an agreement how a word is spelled, and I get to say, wrong, you spelled it wrong. When Webster published his dictionary in the early 1800s, that was, in fact, I, I, I read a book called Undaunted Courage, which is a phenomenal book if you like history and adventure. It is, it is the, the, um, a compilation of the diaries of Lewis and Clark. Two very educated men, and their diaries, they're extensive. And sometimes they'll spell the same word three different ways within a page of each other. Because spelling wasn't standardized in 1805. So, the Greek New Testament being copied, spelling is not standardized. That's one, that's one issue. An overwhelming majority of them are spelling. Some of them are grammatical. By grammatical, you see there it says removable new. The letter N ends a lot of words in Greek. It's called a new, N-U. It ends a lot of words and it's called a weak consonant from a language perspective, from a linguistic perspective. It's a weak consonant. It can regularly just drop off and the word's meaning doesn't change at all. So different periods of Greek, as things are being copied, a scribe would say, yeah, that's unnecessary. We don't even need that N in there and drop it off, and the meaning changes not one bit. Spelling errors, the meanings for the most part do not change. We'll see a few today that do. The other one then there is um, word order. Have you ever heard that Greek doesn't have, have you ever heard that Greek doesn't have a, a standard word order? Why don't you think about English? English is what's called a subject verb object language, SVO. So when I say, Tony loves Teresa, the subject first, 
The verb is second, the object is third. SVO, subject, verb, object. If I say, if I, say, if I mix them up, Teresa loves Tony, have I changed the meaning? Entirely. By the way, both are true. Um, in Greek, you could do any of it. You see, Greek is an inflected language. The end of the word itself tells you whether it's the subject, the object, or whether it's an indirect object, or whether it's an adjective. The endings change. That's what makes Greek so complex. You've got to memorize all those endings. So you can shift the words, and the meaning doesn't change. The emphasis changes, but not the meaning. You can actually say, Tony loves Teresa, in about 40, 50 different ways in Greek because of the nature of definite articles. And it's, it's, it's amazing, Dan Wallace lists them out. Well, word order changes, but it doesn't change the meaning. So a lot of variations or variants are that. So, so that's, that's a lot of the issues going on. I wanna talk about the difference between meaningful and viable, but any questions so far? Randy. Right. Oh, absolutely. But, but because but those 140,000 words are repeated time and time and time again in 5,800 manuscripts. So, so now all of a sudden, one sentence in Greek, so he's asking the question for the people online, if there's 140,000 words but 200,000 variants, that seems a bit overwhelming. It is overwhelming if all we had was one manuscript or two manuscripts to compare then it'd be nonsense. But with 5,800 manuscripts, all of a sudden you realize each manuscript, it gets down to this manageable number, and the majority of them are issues that don't affect the meaning whatsoever. The reader would have skipped right by them. Do we know which of those 140,000 words have the variant? And which yep, we have the manuscripts. So if you want to take the time to look at all 5,800 manuscripts, you can catalog every single one of them. Which by the way, no one's done. They've done, the, they've done a majority of them, but every one of them they haven't done because it's, it's, um, it's a daunting task. No punctuation, no paragraph breaks. I mean, yes, it does. And we'll look at some examples of that. Um, let me go up here and... Um, So, th this, this is how the manuscripts were. There's, there's, min there's no punctuation. <clears throat> there's no paragraph breaks. These, all of these are capitals. Every letter is a capital. And, and, and so, words are broken up like the, you see the circled one? So, you go up here up top. Sorry, I'm short. That word there actually continues over here. So, if they didn't finish the word at the end, they just took it to the next line. No breaks. So sometimes, sometimes where do you break the word changes meaning. That's one of the issues of textual criticism. So Greek readers, and why did they do this, by the way? Why did they write like that? It would have been a lot easier to put breaks between words, put a few commas. One reason is manuscripts are expensive. If we do all these commas and indentations and paragraph breaks, we're wasting space. Um, that's one reason. Otherwise, they're just smarter than we are, I guess. I don't know. But, so here's what, meaningful and viable. 
And we're going to go through this kind of quickly. So the idea of meaningful and viable, a variant that is meaningful, meaning when it changes, there's, each change actually creates a word that's meaningful. Is it echomen or ekamen that changes the word? Um, is it we have or let us have? That's meaningful. Viable then is, is this possible to be the original wording? Is it possible that Paul or whoever the writer was Either one of these could have been Paul's original wording. That's viable. So meaningful means the, the change actually is another word that means something. And viable is it could be Paul's original word. Those things have to be determined. Only 1% of all variants fit meaningful and viable. All right? The rest of them fall under spelling, grammar, word order issues, and other issues that, that everyone knows has no meaning and they're insignificant. It's the nature of handwritten copies. Does that make sense? So now we're down to 1% of that 200,000. And um, so, and you can see four categories are viable but not meaningful, you know, um, meaningful but not viable. Neither meaningful nor viable mean gobbledygook, or both meaningful and viable, which is the category you want. So I gave a few examples here. So we looked at 1 Thessalonians 2.7 last week about the nature of when Paul says, we were like Little children among you, you know, um, how do you put it? We were gentle. No, no, the, the little children. Yes, it was little children or gentle. And, and one, of the, one of them it was like, we were like nursing mothers among you, like little children. And it didn't make any sense. Remember that? So, so you see the word there? I, I put it in English letters. Napioi, apioi. Do you see that? The spelling is identical, except one has a letter added. And this is the case, Kathy, where if I could pull up the manuscript, which I could, but it's not going to take the time to do it. The letter before apioi is the letter nu, n. So the scribe was probably copying things and looking at letters and copied the letter n twice. And it changed it from, little ch or from gentle to little children. Because it's a real word. So these are ones that's meaningful and it's viable. Here's one that is also meaningful. But not viable. I made a mistake in my notes. The next one's meaningful but not viable. In other words, it means something. So, so after me comes a man. So this is John 1.20 talking about John the Baptist. After me comes a man. One manuscript after me comes heir. It's one letter change in the Greek. So a scribe left a letter out, but it's a real word. But do you think it's really viable that, Paul, that John is writing that? Probably not. Under the little children one is an example. Go back up to that one. It says one manuscript has hippioi. So here, here's a, a, a word geek for you. What's a hippopotamus? What does hippopotamus mean? The word hippopotamus. The Greek word hippos means horse. The Greek word potamos means river. So a hippopotamus is a river horse. 
So here, hippioi looks somewhat like napioi. So a scribe added a couple peas in there. You science people, you see the pie. And changed it to, we, acted, we were like hippos among you. We were like horse among you. Well, clearly, no one's going to read that and go, oh, Paul, that's beautiful. It's clearly a, it's meaningful, has meaning, it's a real word, but it's not viable. No one's going to think Paul actually wrote that. So this is the nature of, of some of the variants. Since we were in Romans, look down at the next one. Romans 8.2. The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. This is where a ton of manuscripts come in, variants. Notice in the parentheses what it says. For the law of the spirit of life has set you, but what do the other manuscripts say? Have set me or have set us. These are little pronouns that are easy to mix up in Greek, especially, especially we the plural of us and you. Very easy to make there, one letter difference. And so did Paul say, did Paul say, um, the spirit of life has set you, Romans, set us as a collective, or me? Does it, does it really change the, the significance of the text? How, how much is meaning changed if it's almost every translation, I checked them all today, says set you. The NIV from 1984 says set us. No, set me. Set me free. Does it change anything significantly where you say, I've got to change my theology now? No. It doesn't. The reason one manuscript, some of the manuscripts say me, because Paul ended chapter 7, who will deliver me from this dead body. So Paul goes into chapter 8, which, by the way, he didn't write the chapters. He's just flowing two sentences later now because he didn't write chapter verses. That comes hundreds of years later. It's saying that then most manuscripts say he has set us free or you free. But some looking back to the end of chapter 7 go, whoa, 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 he's talking about himself, so they put me in there. So these are what scribes every once in a while will change it on purpose. Thinking, well, well, they don't think Paul made a mistake. They think the previous person who copied this probably made a mistake. And they're correcting them. You with me so far? So, okay. I want to reiterate at the bottom, reiterate. 1% of all variants are meaningful and viable. And that's where textual criticism takes place. In light of that, I want you to get this piece of paper, the handout. Did y'all get this one? I told you about Bart Ehrman last week. Bart Ehrman, I, I, I think it was last week I told you about him, maybe the week before. He went to Moody Bible Institute, Christian, Christian home. Went to Wheaton College to get his master's degree. And um, was starting to doubt the faith. Went to Princeton, became an agnostic but got a PhD under Bruce Metzger, who was a, a Christian scholar at Princeton that was the most world-renowned textual critic. So Bruce, Bart Ehrman became his protege. Um, but at Princeton, he lost faith, became agnostic. 
He eventually was hired at University of North Carolina Chapel Hill as the head of the religion department, which is really weird to me. That um, it's kind of the story is really sad actually because the previous guy that was head of the religion department at Chapel Hill was a Christian there 30 years that was responsible for sending dozens of people to the mission field. He's replaced by someone who doesn't even believe in God or the Bible and actually has written a dozen books against the Bible, why you should not read this Bible. And um, where this comes from is a little book called Misquoting Jesus, The Story Behind Who Changed the Bible and Why. This is a popular level of this one, The Orthodox Corruption of Scripture. This is a, a technical monograph that I had to, to, to do a paper on in seminary to, to explain what he was saying on how early scribes changed the, the, the manuscripts in order to fit their theology. And a few times I think he's right. But for the most part, I think he's not. I was gonna make a sarcastic remark, but this is being filmed, so I'll be careful here. <laughs> um, but in the, end of the, in the end of this little book here, he now comes up with the top 10 passages that don't belong in your Bible. So this is a renowned textual critic that following all the principles of textual criticism, which we'll look at some more of those in a minute, this is his conclusion, what doesn't belong in your Bible. Now I want us to look these over. A few of them are my favorites. And I'm not only necessarily agree with them, I agree with him on two of them. That probably, and I'll explain what I mean by that. But here's my point. He is so adamant against you can't trust your Bibles, and this list is the best he has. It's, it's really kind of telling that, and, and, um, and if, you, if you want to pursue this more, Dan Wallace and Bart Ehrman are friends. They're, they're textual critics in the same industry, very much opposed to what they believe about the Bible, but they do, they do debates together, and those debates are on Dan Wallace's website, the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts, and they're, they're really very entertaining. Bart Ehrman is a phenomenally entertaining teacher. I just think he's dead wrong. And, and here's the sad part, you guys, ladies. His wife is a committed Christian because they got married as Christians and he leaves the faith. Very sad. But anyways, let's look at these. I'm going to read the, the top paragraph. Some of the most familiar verses in the New Testament were not originally part of the text, but were added by later scribes. This is his presumption. This is his conclusion. Not all critics agree with this. These scribal editions are often found in late medieval manuscripts of the New Testament if I were to pull up those lists again, the centuries manuscripts, they'd be found in the Middle Ages, the 10th through the 16th century. But because some of the best known English editions of the New Testament, such as the King James Bible, i.e. the authorized version, were based not on early manuscripts, but later ones, these verses became part of the Bible translation tradition in the English-speaking lands. The following are some of the verses that originally were not part of the New Testament, the author's translations are from the original Greek. So in other words, these are his translations, not choosing a, another one. But notice what it says, top 10 verses. So these are the best he's got. So, first one, John 5, 7. First John 5. There are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. Anyone in here currently regularly read the King James? Last time I had, there was two people that did. You do New King James, right? 
That's right, yeah. I've bought, I've bought almost all modern versions in large print now. Because um, it's easier. That's support for the Trinity right there. But if you were to check the NIV, ESV, New American Standard, the New Living Translation, any other modern translation, it does not say that. And, and so if you talk to a King James-only person, they're going to say those Bibles took the Trinity out of the, the Word of God. But in fact, there's almost no Greek manuscript evidence for this passage. We're going to learn that the, 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 new, the, the King James Version, we'll learn this next week. I'll give you more details. The King James translation is based upon about a dozen Greek manuscripts. And that's it. All from the Byzantine area from the 12th to the 16th century. And so things had been added in that the earlier manuscripts that our other translations are based on don't have. This is one of them. So that's the most theological of all of these. A passage is taken out of the Bible that appears to have been changed to support the Trinity. Can you support the Trinity without this verse? Hands down. No problem. I do it all the time. I don't even use this verse because I don't think it belongs in the Bible. The King James added something that that 1 John didn't write. Next one. John 8, 7. John 8, 7, 8, 11 are, are the story. It's called the, the, the pericopi adulterate Latin. The, the story of the adulterous woman. My Latin just left me. I couldn't do it. This is one of our favorite Bible verses. Why do you like that passage? From John 7, 58 to 8, 11, I think it is, is the story of the woman caught in adultery. Why, why is that such a precious story? Mercy? What does Jesus say? Where are your accusers? And what does she say? They've left. He goes, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. I mean, we all want to hear that. Well, Bart Ehrman suggests it doesn't belong in the Bible, the whole section. He just picks the two passages that, that we like. Let one who is without sin among you be the first to cast a stone at her. Second one, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Bart Ehrman suggesting these were not written by John. So here's my bombshell. I agree. Why is it in the NIV? It's in, it's in most modern translations. Is the NIV bracketed out? Let me see if I can do something real quick here. Okay, let me see if I can do something here. And um, So, so here's the ESV up here. Can you guys see that okay? Should I make it bigger or can you see it? You see these two brackets right here? Then it goes down to 811 in the NIV. Or this is the ESV. You see the brackets end. Those brackets are telling the English reader, if you looked at the footnotes, that many early manuscripts do not contain this passage. And so, but because it's a favorite passage, they put it in there because if they don't, they're going to not sell their Bible. <laughs> but scholarship requires them to be honest about the process of textual criticism and to tell the reader who's interested to look at the footnotes 
this may not have been written by John. This, in the manuscript tradition, this is in different parts of John. In some manuscripts, it's at the end of John, after the resurrection. It's kind of an, an addendum story. It's in the Gospel of Luke in some manuscripts. And so, if I want you to think this way about this story. John, all the biblical writers have a style, a style and a vocabulary they use. That's pretty consistent. So I want you to think of this. This is John's style, okay? It's a smooth, John is one of the, the he, John uses the most simplest Greek grammar and vocabulary. In fact, if you were to take Greek from me, the first book you would read is 1 John. And the first gospel you would read would be the Gospel of John because it's the simplest vocabulary that you would memorize and the grammar is the simplest. But the complexity of the theology is unbelievable in John. Um, anyways, here, here is all of John. But this story is like this, if I could visualize it. It's different vocabulary and different grammatical style. So it's a reasonable conclusion John didn't write it. But it's got a manuscript tradition that goes back very early. And it's a good chance when the book was canonized, it was in there. So I personally would say John didn't write it, but it belongs in the canon. So I'm happy to preach from it. Because remember, the, the process of canonization, which books belong, God used the church to do that. So do you understand that stories of Jesus traveled independent, oral tradition, we talked about that, Dick? They traveled independent of each other. And the biblical writers took them and put them together and compiled them. And they sometimes put them in different orders because they have a different purpose for telling the story of Jesus. I believe that the story of Jesus and the woman caught in adultery is a true story. I just don't believe John wrote it. Go ahead, Dick. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure I'm getting your question in relationship to John. Well, I didn't say that. I'm saying John didn't write it. Okay. That's a great question, and you're asking a question I really can't answer. And, and you're good at that, Dick. You're good at asking me questions I don't have the answer to. Because <laughs> you're, you're thinking good, though. You're thinking right. Is, is it any different? Because you know, I, would, I would come to today and say, back to our question, I, I think God was in a process of that piping. He was in a process of, of inspiring original documents, determining what books belonged in his Bible, the copying process. I think he's in the whole thing. Um, the, the question, though, of, of why this and not that, I, I don't know if I can answer that. And, and today, if someone says, hey, if we found Paul's 3 Corinthians, we should put it in. I'd say absolutely not. Canon's closed. You know? Or someone has a revelation, they say, this is equal to the Word of God. I would say, no, it's not. It may be a revelation, but it has to submit to the Word of God. But, so, and not everyone agrees with me that are evangelicals. Some would say this belongs in there. Others would say it does not belong in there, and it's not the Word of God. I say John didn't write it, but it's been in there for a long time. Let's leave it alone. 
And it's, and it's one of my favorite stories. So that one, forgiving, forgiving the prostitute, healing the woman with the issue of blood, in, in Mark 5, and healing the, 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 um, the um, leper in Mark 1, when the leper says to him, you're able to heal me, but will you? I think it's a brilliant question. I know you have the power, but do you care? All of these show Jesus' great compassion for people. So I'm not getting rid of that story. But we have to be honest. There's evidence that John didn't write it. Make sense? Let's keep going. We're spending too much time on this. Where's my glasses? What'd you do with them? You dropped my glasses. I threw them. Annika. Luke 22. In the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup and said, this cup is poured out for you and is the new covenant in my blood. Now, if we went back up into... It said that these are older manuscripts or, or newer manuscripts. When I say older, I mean closer to Jesus' time. Say newer, I mean closer to our time. Up there it says these are added from medieval manuscripts. This one goes way back the second, third, fourth century. So he's just not telling us the truth on that. Um, but but he, he, he supports, this guy suggests certain Western manuscripts are more important than Alexandrian manuscripts. So I'm going to trust them, not these. Most scholars completely disagree with them. So here's the problem. This book he writes, this one is written for a popular audience. It's published by, what'd you use my glasses now? Where are they? Oh, gosh. Oh, this is the sad part, you guys. This is published by HarperCollins, a, sec- a secular publishing company. And do you know what Christian publishing company they own? Zondervan. So they're in it for money. So they'll publish an atheist book on telling you can't trust the Bible. But the other wing of their publishing company would trust to, to, to publish something that tells you can't trust the Bible because they both sell. The evils of capitalism. Let's become socialists. Let's, we're not going down that road. I'm just, <laughs> so, um, but this is not peer-reviewed. This he can write and publish and the publishing company asked the question, hey, will this sell? It sold a million, more probably. This one is published by Oxford Press. It's peer-reviewed. He can't get away with sloppiness here. He can't get away with outlandish claims because it has to be submitted in Oxford Press' system to peers. Way more reasonable in this book about this issue. So it's just about what sells. And so, so go ahead, Elder. Say again. Uh-huh. Yes, and I think I think peer-reviewed and scholarly stuff is very important because because every Bible we have in our hands, most of them are done by scholars. We want to know these scholars know what they're doing. And that there's groups of them that submit to each other because not one person will ever make all right decisions. But in our popular publishing company, this is his opinion. But people read it and they go, see, I told you, you can't trust the Bible because Barterman says so. Now, so so let's, let's quickly go through these. So he did the same thing again. Um, so, so Mark, oh, Mark, the end of Mark. Look, let's look at Mark up here. If you guys turn to your Bibles to Mark 16, please. Mark 16. What are you laughing at, Dick? (laughs) 
Exactly, exactly. I, I was going to make that joke too, so I'm glad you did. So <clears throat> you guys see there at the end of Mark in your Bibles, end of Mark 6.8, how does Mark 6.8 end? They were afraid. Okay, now in verse 9 through, is it 22 is the end or 20? 20. So um, you'll see brackets that suggest, and what do your footnotes say? Do you have a footnote on that in your Bible? Mark 16.8. Did I say 6? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. See, I, I make mistakes in talking. Imagine what I do in writing. Anyone got a footnote? Talk to me. Yes. What does it say? Some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16:9-20. Some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16:9-20. The truth of the matter is, very, very few Greek manuscripts included. The Latin does. It's not till much later that you know, several hundred years that all of a sudden the Greek manuscripts have it. So, did the early manuscripts did it drop out to the Greek? And was added later, or, or, or restored later, or was it found somewhere else in Latin manuscripts and some Greek scribe put it in Greek? Once again, we have the exact same thing as John 7 and 8. It's a different vocabulary, a different style than the rest of Mark. So again, it doesn't appear Mark wrote it, does it belong in our Bibles? So you made a joke about charismatics. Who's the charismatic? So, so Dick's the charismatic. Why do you like this passage, Dick? Why do you like this passage? I, I'm not going to argue with you. I'm just curious. Absolutely. And, and, and that, that it, I'm not going to argue against that. Because it says in here, those who believe in Jesus will speak in tongues. They will drink poison and not die. They will get bitten by snakes and all these things. Because all the miracles that will happen to someone who believes in Jesus. So clearly it's a favorite text for someone who supports those things. And by the way, and I, know, I, I don't know about you, but um, if you go down to the backwoods of Georgia, this is their text for snake handling. Um, not many of us are doing that today. In fact, almost nobody is. <laughs> So, and, and, but is there evidence in the Bible someone got bit by a snake and didn't die? Paul, when he's traveling to Rome, shipwrecked on the island. So, so there's evidence this pointed to something that, was, that truly happened. My point is simple. I don't believe John, I don't believe Mark wrote it. Does it belong in your Bible? You guys got to decide that. But here's my point. What do you lose so far? What do you lose in all these? What do you lose about your walk with Jesus, about your theology, if we take all these passages out of the Bible? That's my whole point in showing this. Nothing. I lose the favorite story, the woman caught in adultery, if I'm going to agree with him. Um, if you go to the next page, there's more, but I'll, I'll let you do that. We're spending too much time on this. Here's my point. We have 5,800 manuscripts. Those manuscripts, no two are alike. In them, scholars estimate 200 to 400,000 variants in those 5,800 manuscripts, which makes it sound like, oh my goodness, can we trust anything? But as we look at the process, we see there's 140,000 words in the New Testament, 
that are then repeated over 5,800 manuscripts, so the amount of variance aren't that surprising. And when we look at meaningful and viable mistakes, it narrows down to 1%. And according to Bart Ehrman, who was an expert, these are his best to say, take it out. So when we go back to How much pollution has entered in when it comes to the copies? If Bart Ehrman is our representative of someone who says you can't trust it, and this is what he gives us at the top ten, what does that say about the rest of your New Testament? Even he says it's intact. Or he'd have put it in here. Not one thing changes about Tell me some of the things at the heart of the faith. What, what, is, what, what do you call bullet theology? Something you would die for. If, if, if they came and held a gun to your head and said, deny that, what is it you would never deny? That's why we call it bullet theology. Yep, 1 Corinthians 15 says, if you don't believe that, you're not a Christian. Death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. Is that it? Son of God. Okay. And, and with that comes the whole... The whole, the whole deity of Christ, that is God become man, fully God, fully man. That's a theology developed out of that. How about salvation by faith alone, not works? That's in there. Um, what's funny, pardon me? So, so, which you can quote, obviously. So confess through the mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you shall be saved. Because with the mouth, I don't know verse 10, I just know nine. So, um, <laughs> um the, what about the virgin birth? Do you know the first thing that liberals denied in the 1920s? Virgin birth. And so there was a large movement to defend the virgin birth. And a book was written called The Fundamentals. It was actually four volumes called The Fundamentals. These are the fundamentals of the faith. This is bullet theology. Now that term's been come as a negative term. Oh, you're a fundamentalist. But it started off as a good thing. Would you put the virgin birth in there? Why is the virgin birth important? This is kind of a sidebar. Okay, and, and why is that important to know that Jesus had no sin? Okay, and, and, and so, so absolutely, that, that's, he can't be our sacrifice without sin. But the virgin birth is connected to the deity of Christ. A woman does not get pregnant without a man. But God creates the man, Jesus Christ, without a father and a virgin. And thus the miracle there of God becoming human. When it says, the virgin shall bear a child, and you shall call him um, Emmanuel, which is what? God with us. So, so they defended it. So there's, but there's very few things in that circle. No textual criticism. Textual criticism doesn't touch one bit of it. Not one bit. So when you hear people like Bart Ehrman writing his popular books, or you, read, you watch movies, Da Vinci Code, like Dan Brown, where they challenge that, don't, um, don't be upset by it. Understand there are, um, if, if our faith was so unreasonable that it was that easy to refute, it would have been gone a long time ago. So, so don't, let, don't, let those, don't, don't ignore them. If you're one of those people that maybe have a gift for apologetics, then r- pursue it. 
but know that other people have that. And um, so, any questions or thoughts so far? What time we got, Daryl? Hmm. Huh? You know, it's funny, Daryl, as I saw it earlier, and you, and you were saying something to me, and I can't hear. See, we, we have a bunch of more technical information, which I'm not sure I want to take our last 20 minutes just um, running down. But let me... Let me give you a big overview. Go to the G, top of the page. That would be the fourth page, I think. The practice of textual criticism. Do you see that? When the textual critic sits down. And when I say the textual critic, I mean... So, I had a Greek Bible here last week. And that Greek Bible is called the United Bible Society's 5th edition. And... It is edited by six textual critics. They look at the manuscripts and they collate it to what they believe is the, the right readings that Paul, Matthew, John all wrote. Do you remember we talked about how, give me a second here and I'll pull this other. How up top there you see the red one that means it comes from verse 1. Then you see in the brackets it says A. Does everybody see that? Am I got it up there? Up top left. You see one. That's the first textual variant on the page. Then you see the other one. That's the ver- this comes out of verse 1. Then in the bracket it says A. You with me? That means these six textual critics say we all agree this is the original wording. All right? Then when it was a B... There was not entirely full commitment. C, half and half. D, we're not making a commitment. So all textual variants, about 400, part of that 1% of meaningful and viable, they give a number to. Then they publish this New Testament. The New Testament they publish is not one manuscript. You can't go out and find a manuscript of what they publish called the Greek New Testament United Bible Society's 5th edition. It is a compilation of hundreds and hundreds of manuscripts they use to compile it. They're not doing all 5,800 because that's not humanly possible right now with six people. But, but they do, so, so, but it's very well represented, so I don't want to undermine the 5,800. Are you with me in the process? Then you come to the NIV. The NIV has over 200 translators that translated it. And they assigned them to books. They would sign five or six Greek scholars to Romans, five or six Hebrew scholars to Isaiah, and they would translate. It would be a process where other groups would double-check it. The English committee would double-check it. And at the end of a very long process, you get the NIV. Each one of those five or six, let's say Romans, okay? These five guys, six textual critics, produced, produced the New Testament and gave it to the translators. The translators took it, and they repeated the textual criticism process but they disagreed with these guys sometimes. So you have many, many people behind your English translations who are both scholars in Greek, scholars in Hebrew, and thoroughly equipped in textual criticism to, to deliver in your hands an English Bible. And it's a process where, are they perfect? Are they infallible? Absolutely not. Nothing in this process is humanly infallible. 
But the Bible Timothy read, the Greek translation of the Hebrew copies of the Hebrew original, our Bibles are way better than what he had. Because we still have what he had. And we look at it and go, man, this, this got some major issues with it called the LXX, the Septuagint. Our Bibles are way better. But Paul called his Bible inspired. So we can rest assured, you guys, that the process we have is unbelievable. Dan Wallace refers to the manuscript evidence as an embarrassment of riches that we have compared to the rest of the ancient world. And the scholarship that we have in the church, um, is, and NIV is, first of all, NIV is not my favorite translation, but their methodology is phenomenal. When they put these teams of five and six together, they're always multi-denominational. If, if, how many Baptists in the room, Baptist background? I'm not gonna insult you, okay? Three. But you three I can insult. <laughs> um, if you want a Baptist translation, get the Holman Christian Standard Bible. HCSB. Because Holman is a Baptist publishing company. So they took their seminary professors and they published a Bible that's Baptistic. It's for the most part pretty good. But I say, I'm not going to use it because it's too overemphasizing. It's too, it's, there's too many Baptists involved. <laughs> and by the way, that's, I've never attended a Baptist church, but I went to a Baptist seminary. So it's kind of like staying at Holiday Inn. I, I qualify, you know. Um, so so here's, the, here's what they do. These scholars that I just kind of went through a long explanation of how you got your Bible. The scholars that both put that original Greek New Testament together and then the translators who take it and repeat the textual criticism. Here's the process they go through. Um, some, not necessarily steps, but categories. So it says the practice of textual criticism. You with me? They notice number one, external evidence. Down at the bottom of the page, two, internal evidence. Are you with me? No? Okay. So external evidence is looking at manuscripts. We have all these manuscripts that have to be looked at. It's called external because it's something physical you can grab. All right? And we're going to look at it. Which one of these manuscripts are of the best value, of, we can trust the most? And, and the, so they have three criteria. These are called the canons of textual criticism. Okay? By canon, means the rule, the, 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 the ruler we use for external evidence. So we're going to prefer the older reading. So if you remember, the oldest manuscripts come from Alexandria. The King James is based upon much later readings. So that's why the King James, and if you took the NIV and King James and compared them, you would, you would say, this, there's some interesting differences here. But we're going to take the older manuscripts because we presume this. If I write something in the first century, and Randy takes it and copies it in the second century, and Elena copies it in the third century, and we go down the line, and Annika translate, copies it in the fourth century, fifth century, we're going to presume as each century goes by, there's a possibility that more variants are entered in through the copying process. So it seems to make sense, let's get as early as we can to when Paul or Peter or John or Isaiah, whoever wrote it. So does that make sense? That's the first canon. The second one, prefer the reading that occurs in widely separated geographical areas. My map, you have, you have Alexandria, you have the Byzantine Empire and you have the Western world. If a reading is on all of them, that would suggest this variant didn't pop up in one geographical area. Since the scribes down in Alexandria may be copying something, but the manuscripts they copied and they got recopied and recopied and recopied never made it to Byzantine. 
So they didn't repeat the error. So try and, and pick, we pick a variant that is in the most geographical areas as possible. Third one, prefer the reading that is supported by the greatest number of text types. Text types being manuscripts, translations, church fathers, lectionaries. So if all of those seem to have that, that makes sense. And this is where the translations come in that you know, if, if a Greek is translated to Syriac and the Syriac has that, that supports the fact that it was original. So, so those are the canons of external criticism. Excuse me, the, that's the canons of the external evidence of textual criticism. Prefer the older reading. Prefer the reading that occurs in widely geographical areas. And prefer the reading that's supported by the greatest number of text types. Um, this one's fairly, this one's not very subjective. This one's the least subjective of them. We go to the internal evidence. This is, this is more subjective. This is now looking at scribal practices. So the first one. Look there what it says and highlight. The reading that best explains the origin of the other reading is probably original. This line of evidence is concerned with scribal habits and practices along with the original author's style and vocabulary. So prefer the shorter reading. What's been shown is scribes tend to add, not take away. If a scribe's going to add something, they're like, well, this doesn't make sense. I think I'll add this word here. Let me give you some examples. The Gospel of John, or let's say the Gospel of Mark, will say the Lord Jesus. And then the other manuscript says the Lord Christ. So a scribe will say, well, I'm combining them. The Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's, that's called conflation. That is what the Byzantine manuscripts did. You know, five, six hundred thousand years after the New Testament was written, the Byzantine scribes tended to conflate things, especially in the Gospels. If you read the Gospels in the, if you read, if you were to, if you could do this, the Greek manuscript behind the King James and the Greek manuscript behind the NIV, New America, St. ESV, the one behind the King James is, has a lot more words in it because it's dependent upon much later manuscripts that had the practice of the scribes adding words because they felt, well, it's missing something. I'm going to add it in. But, well, John says it, so I'm going to add it into Matthew. Does that make sense? So you prefer the shorter reading. Next one, prefer the most difficult reading. Scribes had a tendency to smooth things out. So here's one. We talked about it two weeks ago. Or maybe last week. I, I lose track when we did things. Do you remember John 7? Jesus said, I don't go to this to this festival. And what did he do? He disguised himself and went. He deceived his brothers. Well, that, that's difficult. Our Lord deceives his brothers? Really? Jesus, that's a sin. So a scribe most likely took it and made it less objectionable. He just had, had two little letters. When Jesus said, I, I don't go to this festival, he put... I don't go yet to this festival. He alleviates the problem. So scribes tended to alleviate problems like that. And, um, and by the way, I'm, someday I'm going to teach an ethics class here. Who, who would say deception is always a sin? Nobody. You guys are all liars. Always a sin. To deceive someone is always a sin. Ra Randy's the only purist in the room. 
So Corrie Ten Boom lied to the Nazis. Did she lie? Did she sin? It's a great, it's a great class. We're going to do ethics classes coming up here. What's that? You don't know? Who are you to judge? <laughs> we judge all the time, Monica. All the time. Yeah. So, so anyways, the more difficult reading. That's a, that's a sidebar. Again. Prefer the reading that best accords with the author's style and vocabulary. Then look at the next one. Prefer the reading that best fits the context of theology of the author. Back to Romans 5.1. We, we have peace with God or let us have peace with God. Paul's theology is very clear as he's building the argument of justification now establishes peace. So his theology is clear. It's we have it, not let's go get it. So his theology then will inform us how to, which variant to pick. The style up there under C would address the question of did John write the story of the woman caught in adultery? Did Mark write the ending of Mark? Style is very different. Prefer the less harmonious reading in parallel passages. That primarily affects the Gospels. Let me read to you um, what Matthew Black, who, who I use Matthew Black's book. I'm now teaching right now um, a class in Greek exegesis. So it's, it's how, to, how to interpret the Bible in Greek. It's a fourth semester Greek class. And they have to read Black's book by tomorrow. <laughs> so, because I have the class tomorrow. No, no, what is today? Excuse me, by Thursday, by Thursday. And so this, this is a book that I have them read. But here's what Matthew Black says. Matthew Black is a professor of Greek down at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. A Baptist. So, of course, the greatest concussion must be exercised in applying these principles. They are inferences rather than axiomatic rules. What's an axiom? An axiom is something that is always true. Okay? So he said these are inferences rather than axiomatic rules. Indeed, it is not uncommon for the two or more principles to conflict. Hence, none. So in other words, you could have, well, Paul's normal style is this, but that makes it the easier reading. Do I choose the harder reading or Paul's normal style? So that's what the textual critic, this is sometimes art, sometimes science. Hence, none of them can be applied in a mechanical or unthinking fashion. If in the end you are still undecided, you should pay special attention to external evidence, that is the manuscripts themselves, as it is less subjective and more reliable. So, this is the process they go through, and any questions on this? Randy. Right? Right? Peace. Mm-hmm. So, so, so what does that say? Okay, so, so Randy here, Randy's doing, he's doing D. Randy's saying Ephesians 2, 14 says Christ is our peace. And it's t- talking about there how Christ reconciled Jew and Gentile and made peace and then reconciled us as the body of Christ to, to the Father. He created peace. That, there's no textual variance on that passage. So Paul's theology clearly is Christ created peace through his death. So Randy's saying, if I have a choice between let us have peace or we have peace, and the external evidence is equal, manuscripts are, you know, support each side, I'm going with we have peace because it's in other parts of Paul's writings. So you're a textual critic, Randy. Well, when I wrote 
Say shalom, yes. Um, I don't. I have no clue. What is it? If you understand that better, but, but see now, see now, what you're doing is you're taking a biblical concept and asking how Jewish believers apply it. You know, it 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 would come from an Old Testament concept of peace, but clearly they could care less what Paul says. Um, but I do believe when Paul talks about peace. He's influenced by the Old Testament concept of shalom, 100%. And often when we see the word peace, we tend to think of an emotional stability. Oh, I feel better now. As opposed to, no, there's no enmity between me and God. It is gone. And now, therefore, I can feel at peace. That's oh, right. Go ahead. Yeah. So, so Gloria is married to Paul, who is Jewish, and so I'm talking for the camera, that, that she says it is peace what? Peace be with you. Peace be with you, okay, is what, what Shabbat Shalom means, peace be with you. So it is a, a is that a declaration? It's kind of a blessing? Yeah, yeah, peace be with you, okay. Mm-hmm. So, so now... This last handout, grab it, I'm not going to walk through it. This is for your, um, I mean, when, you, when you're really bored, this will liven up your world. Or, if you can't sleep, this may be the cure. This comes from Black's book on different kinds of errors. And, and a lot of Greek in there, but he puts them in English. So, it, it just shows you how scribes can make... Um, um, mistakes by looking at things. So sometimes, it, like all those lines, let me see if I can get back up here. So you look up here, okay, um, this is a good one. So you see up there, you see the first line ends in a capital N, right? That's the Greek letter nu. The second line ends in a capital N. So the scribe could be copying along, and he finishes the first line. So he's looking, finishes the first line, looks back to his original, and then, but his eyes drop to the second line and sees the N, assumes that's what he just wrote, and drops down to the third line. So you have manuscripts where whole lines are missing because the ending letter was the same and the manuscripts, the scribe's eyes missed it. And so that's just one error that they could do. That's an unintentional error. Other ones are intentional, you know. There was certainly, his, his accusation is that, that um, early Christian, what's called proto-Orthodox. Proto-Orthodox are those before Nicaea that held to Nicaean theology of Jesus being God. But there was other parts of Christianity that held to different things. We talked about those the first week. And... He suggests that the proto-Orthodox scribes changed things to get rid of support for those other theologies. And he gives a few examples that it probably did happen, that certain things that just didn't fit what I believe, so I'm changing it. Textual critic has to be able to see through that. And, and, and so that requires them a little bit of history of doctrine. I'm trying to think of an example. Um, I can't come up with one. But, so... 
Um, well, the first John 5, 7, and 8 down there, that, that's, that's a, I don't think, a good one. So what we're going to do now is we'll end early today, which almost never happens for me, so don't get used to it. Oh, four minutes, really early. Um, next thing we're going to do is we're going to look at a man named Erasmus. Um, Erasmus was a Catholic priest. He was a contemporary to Martin Luther. And he was, a, he, was, he was what's known as a Renaissance man. He was a genius in so many areas. And he was a, a linguistic scholar. So he's out collecting manuscripts in order to publish a Greek New Testament. Because now the printing press has come about. So it's no longer, you don't need handwritten copies anymore. So Erasmus is about 50, 60 years after the printing press. And so he's getting as many manuscripts as he can find to publish a Greek New Testament that then translators will use to translate into different languages. He wants to collate all these manuscripts. Well, there's this Spanish priest named Ximenes. He's doing the same thing. So there's a race. And Erasmus wins. He gets the first one published because good capitalists, he made the money and the fame. But it wasn't near as good as Ximenes' text. But it's still the one that, the, that every English translation is based on until the 20th century. So we'll, we'll talk about that story next week and start looking at early English translations from Wycliffe to, to um, um, the guy that was put to death for translating the Bible, Tyndale. We'll move into to, to about seven, eight different English translations before we get to the King James. So that's where we're going next week. And the technical stuff is slowing down. So thank you guys for your, your faithfulness in coming. This is a blast to me. And, um, and I can see Annika laugh at me. So, <laughs> Father, thank you for this today. And, and again, Lord, that we have the opportunity to understand all these things. How you providentially oversaw a process filled with possible mistakes and potentialities. And as we're going to learn in English translation, filled with intrigue. Um, so thank you, Father, that we get to learn these things. But in the end, we still trust in, in your providential control of the process to where we have your authoritative words in our hands today. So we thank you for the, the abundance of manuscripts we have. I thank you for all these textual critics that do this work to provide us with a reliable word. Thank you, Father. In, in Christ's name we give praise. Amen. If anyone likes to read, if you like to read, oh, I just got shut off. It's okay. There's a book. I